Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles, and this is part two of episode number nine, which features coverage from 2020 NBA All-Star Weekend, which took place in Chicago, Illinois, the Windy City. And it wasn't that windy uh, other than Friday. Friday was whew, brutal, but Saturday and Sunday was pretty pretty nice indeed. But anyway, um, we're going to feature many other uh, sounds and also full interviews uh, conducted by yours truly on the show. And I want to get right to it. The first interview I will present my uh, sit-down conversation with the great Alex English. Now, Alex English was an eight-time NBA All-Star NBA scoring champion as well for the Denver Nuggets, and a Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer who was inducted in 1997. One of the great scorers in the history of the game, and he has the most career points in the decade of the 1980s. People don't know that. But anyway, it was great to sit down with Mr. English and talk about uh, a lot of things when it came to All-Star Weekend, his career, and the current landscape of the National Basketball Association. So here we go. Welcome to Where They're At. My name is Nabate Isles. It is my pleasure to interview so many different wonderful retired athletes that have really set the tone for their respective sports. And here I'm at the NBA All-Star Weekend festivities in Chicago 2020. And it is my pleasure to have Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, one of the greatest scorers in the history of the National Basketball Association, Mr. Alex English. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm great. Great to be here. Yes, excelente. Yes, and uh, I wanted to. There's so much to talk about with you for sure. Um, and but I know, I know you have to catch a flight too. So yeah, I'm glad yeah, you. It's okay, we can talk. <laughs> okay, yeah, I appreciate you. Uh, now, talk about like your upbringing. You came up in Columbia, South Carolina. I did, which was very interesting because I had a lot of relatives in South Carolina, and it's funny. Your parents worked in New York. You know, up yes. in New York. So talk about that experience of, did you travel back and forth from Columbia, New York? And well, I grew up in South Carolina, and back then that was during the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. civil rights era, uh, when blacks were not uh, able to, you know, get jobs, yes. uh, get quality jobs and right. make money to feed their families. So my, my first, my father moved to New York City just looking for a better job, mm-hmm. better pay. And then my mother followed him, and I ended up living with my grandmother and my one brother, two sisters, and a host of cousins. Wow. So the great migration to the north uh, when I was a young kid was for better jobs, Mm. better lifestyle, uh, avoiding as much as possible the racism of the Mm -hmm. South. My grandparents did the same thing. Yeah, so, you know, there was a great migration, and... You know, what we see now in South Carolina is that that migration is a migration, a backward migration, because all of those people that have gotten older and their children, they're all coming back towards the South. Mm -hmm. That's right. And because especially the Northeast is getting more expensive, too, with gentrification, driving people out, unfortunately. Talking with Alex English, Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, and also the leading scorer in the NBA in the 1980s, over 20,000 points. I don't know the exact number, but I would say around 20,200 around there. I don't like, know the number either, <laughs> but uh, it was 
It was a lot of points. Yes, yes, sir. And, and you went to the University of South Carolina, which had very good alumni around that time, and Frank Winters and, and Mike Dunleavy, a good mm-hmm. friend of mine, Mike Dunleavy Sr., and, of course, yourself. Um, how, did, how were you guys able to really get the program on the map? They were very good teams, though, and it was more uh, balanced, you know, after UCLA's dynasty. Well, the team got uh, got recognized mainly during that era. Uh, they were Frank McGuire, who came from New York City mm-hmm. to coach the team. Yes, sir. Uh, he was the one that bought the prominence there. He, when he came, he brought a lot of the New York players. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, we were supposed to be like the elite players in, in yeah. the country. And Brian and Mike. Brian Winters, New York, John New York. Roach, mm-hmm. Tom Owens. Mm-hmm. And he brought them there. He recruited a lot of New Yorkers. And they uh, they were in the ACC, and they got the program up. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time I got there, though, they Frank McGuire, I guess he had a uh, an argument with the uh, ACC and decided, well, we're going to leave the league, and we became an independent. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So, Before then, the SEC now. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But he did a great job of bringing great talent to South Carolina, and the people loved him. And, that brought a lot of the crowds in, a lot of popularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and seeing, you know, how he coached, seeing the players and the players that he brought in and coaches that he brought in, I decided I want to stay. I want to be a part of making this a, a place, a great place for other African-Americans to play in. Yes, indeed. Yes, and that's important, too, especially with those southern schools where yes. there was more integration in the 70s and it was starting, of course, with the civil rights movement. Uh, uh, fading, and it, I guess I guess in a good way you can say in a good way, but not really because the racism was still prevalent, yeah, of course. Still and, yeah, still there, you know. So, um, but now, but I but I also knew that you know the the racism that was there, you had to attack it. You, mm-hmm. you couldn't back away from it. Yes, you had to deal with it up front, and and going there and bringing other African Americans there behind me uh, was important yes. because that instituted the change that happened mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. now you look at most southern most southeast basketball teams the southeastern league almost any basketball team is yep. going to be predominantly african-americans that's right that's right um wow and and speaking of predominantly african-american what does the texas western team of 1966 what do they mean to you uh it means a great deal because that was a team in fact their coach went into the Hall of Fame with me. Mm, Don Haskins. Don Haskins went into the Hall of Fame with me. And that was the team that had all the the African-Americans that won the national championship. That's right. So that meant a lot. That meant that, you know, these guys can play. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, let's give them an opportunity. Yes. And other teams – and outsmart as well. Not just physically, but mentally. Mentally as well. Mm -hmm. And they – the other team saw this and said, hey, I need to go get me one of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, they yeah, had to go get yeah. them some. And, right. you know, that was the advent of uh, African-Americans playing in the in the league and in, in college, not in the league, but in, in college. And mm-hmm. uh, it was very important. Wow. Wow. Talking with Alex English, Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer here in Chicago, uh, 2020 version of All-Star Weekend. And now – it took you a while to find your niche to be able to to become the great player that you became. Like, mm-hmm. talk about the early beginnings, how you didn't give up, how you kept cultivating your skills before you got the right opportunity going to the Denver Nuggets, being traded from Indiana. Okay, well, I got drafted by Milwaukee Bucks, mm-hmm. and I was a second round pick. Yep. 
Uh, I made the team that first year. Yeah. They were, you know, they were short on a few players. I was fortunate enough to make the team hard work, though. Mm -hmm. And then the second year, they drafted two guys at my position, Ernie Grunfeld and Marcus Johnson. They had three wow. first-round picks, and wow. two of those first-round picks were uh, the small forwards. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And great small forwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I had been there, and, uh, you know, I, I felt I was emboldened by the year that I had before. Mm -hmm. I played well. But, you know, they had decided, actually, my first year is the year that they decided that they were going to cut me, huh. uh, even though I'd had a great preseason. Mm -hmm. And Wayne Embry was a general manager That's at right. the time. That's and uh, I remember them calling me and saying, okay, the deadline is now we need you to come down to the, uh, to the arena office. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was living, at that time I was living with, living in a complex of Brian Winters, Quinn Buckner. We were overweighting and it was one of those days. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, Brian Winters said, I'll, I'll drive you down. So he drives me down to the arena, mm -hmm. and he says, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you out, you know, and I'm gonna walk over here to Major Goosby's and have a beer, and I'll wait for you to give okay. you a ride back." Huh. We all knew what the deal was that yep. I was getting ready to get cut. Yeah. So I go in, and when I get in, Don Nelson and Wayne Embry there are there, and Wayne Embry says, "Well, he goes through this little soliloquy of uh, this is that and this is that and." Then he says, we decided we're going to keep you. You've worked too hard. We're going to mm -hmm. keep you. That's right. Now, that is what emboldened me to be confident as my years went on. Yes. Because I knew that I had worked hard and I'd earned that position. So, I, I Milwaukee uh, got traded from Milwaukee to Indiana. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, Indiana, I thought I had a decent career there. Got mm -hmm. an opportunity to score and, and, mm -hmm. and play defense, block shot. I wasn't just a... Scorer. Yeah. You know, yeah. I did other things. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I got a call from uh, the Indiana coach saying that they, it was a trade deadline. They needed to make a change. They wanted to bring uh, George McGinnis home to mm -hmm. Indianapolis. Yep. Yep. My coach from college was the head coach in Denver. He knew me. Mm -hmm. He said, well, we'll take Alex English. <laughs> so I go there, and then my career just took off. Like wildfire. Who was the coach? Who was the coach? Donnie Walsh Donnie was the Walsh. coach. Okay, wow. And Doug Moe was the assistant, but then Doug Moe took over. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Doug Moe's style was just fit for me. And that's, yes. you know, it takes, sometimes it takes a place, you got to find a, a system that fits you. Right. And right. his system fit me. Yes, indeed. And, and how did you, that means your conditioning and it was incredible, obviously, because it was a fast-paced style, which which was different for the NBA to see. I mean, Denver, you guys were scoring 100, 115, 120 points a game with regularity. We averaged and, 120. Uh, yeah, yes, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, and, and another thing, too, is that you had to maintain that playing, what, 40 minutes a game? He played yeah, at that I, time, 41 minutes I a played, game? I played a long time, and uh, the conditioning we were in – was a result of not just being in a high altitude, but knowing what was expected when we got to training camp. Mm. So you worked hard. So when you got there, 12 you were months of the year, 12 yeah, months. That's 12 right. Months of the year. Yes, indeed. And, so and uh, that's that's how we condition ourselves. And unlike a lot of the traditional coaches, Doug Moe let us condition ourselves by when we got in there, we just started playing. 
playing fast break basketball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's what it is now. I wanted to ask you, how, like with the NBA now, with the scoring increasing once again, mm-hmm. and also with uh, offensive um, offenses emphasis and everything, talk about how the Denver Nuggets of the 1980s influenced the game now, today. I would like to think that the Denver Nuggets did influence the game, but I don't know if a lot of the players saw that, but then maybe, you know, some of the coaches played against it, like mm-hmm. Rick Carlisle and uh, Steve Kerr. Mm-hmm. You know, they played against our offense, but uh, I don't know if it's a conscious thought that, okay, maybe we should get back to the way it used to be because a lot of teams had that fast-paced offense when I played. Mm-hmm. Certainly the Lakers. Oh, yes. Certainly the Spurs and the Mavericks mm-hmm. because they had players that could play that way and that was a fun way to play and yep. you got a lot of scoring yeah and the game has changed in the sense that it's a more of a three-point game now right right but back then the game was uh, more artistic mm. you know it was an in-between game it was yes. uh you know you had guys being able to create and, and mm-hmm. be artistic in the flow of Ooh, the game that's right now it's uh coming down spotting up a three-point shot and mm-hmm. getting in position to shoot, shoot a three mm-hmm. so it's taken away from the expression of the game Wow. Uh, but wow. now the players uh, are trying to get back to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And which players now are so expressive that you see that are able to score, and not just from the behind the three-point line, but like you said, be able to mid-range. create shots mid-range, be able to, to find ways with ball handling to find their spot and, and, and be, be consistent. Mm-hmm. I, I really like Kawhi Leonard's game. Mm-hmm. He yes. does that well. Uh, I like DeMar DeRozan. Yep. He yep. does it very well. Mm-hmm. And, and a host of other guys, they're beginning to realize that you can't live beyond, you can't make a living beyond the three-point line without having a game in between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And now, Denver, the Western Conference, you know, you had to deal with the Lakers, basically. You know, like, that's ba- now, um, how disappointing was it for you, Kiki Vandeweghe, Dan Issel, all those years, you know, Calvin Natt, all those years falling short where you guys had the talent. I think the year that we could have gotten through the Lakers was when we were in the Western Conference Finals mm-hmm. against the Lakers. Mm-hmm. We beat them in the forum. Of, no, they beat us the first game, just killed us. Mm-hmm. The second game, we come back and beat them. We go back to Denver. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Back then, that was a 2-2-1-1-1 That's right. format. That's right. And we get back to Denver, and uh, six minutes into the game, I get an elbow and break my thumb. And that wow. was it for me. So, you know, my team depended on what I did on the floor, which mm-hmm. was score mm-hmm. and rebound and pass and mm-hmm. and be uh, a threat, uh, be uh, uh, an offender, uh, an offender that they had to be aware of. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. that was a big loss. Wow. And speaking of '88, All Star Weekend last time in Chicago was 1988. Speaking of that That's year, right. that was a memorable, memorable weekend. Yes. For sure. Um, what were your recollections of it? Because you're an eight-time All-Star yourself. You know, yeah, like you, yeah. you are perennially. What's your favorite All-Star moment, first of all? And then we'll, we'll get into the 88 uh, weekend. Well, my favorite All-Star moment, I don't remember years. Oh, right, right. But I do remember uh, it was a year that they had the famine in Ethiopia. Okay. And uh, in we are the wor- when We Are the World came out. We the Are song. the World. Yeah, and uh, I was able to get all of the All-Stars to 
to donate the money that they won in the game mm. and lost in the game, donated to the famine relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put that together, and, and David Stern said, okay, we'll match it. That's so wow. we were yes. able to raise oh, close to $250,000 mm-hmm. to feed uh, starving people in That's Africa. Right. So right. that was my, my greatest moment. Mm. Uh, it was a non-basketball moment. Yes. That I was able to get those guys to do that. And this is talking about the Birds and Jabars and mm-hmm. all those guys. Wow. And, and, and speaking of those all-star games were so competitive, too. <laughs> well, you know what? One of the reasons why I was competitive was because we were looking, to get, looking forward to getting that paycheck. <laughs> you know, if you won, you got like 20 grand. If you lost, you got 10, <laughs> whatever it was. But, yeah. you know, that was just, you, we didn't make the type of money that they make today. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we valued the dollar. Yeah, yeah. So we were very competitive. Wow, no, no doubt. And the practices were, too, as yes. well, right? Yeah, very competitive. Yes, yes. Wow, talking with Alex English, Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer. And, wow, there's a bird, a little uh, bird flying around yeah. here. <laughs> like, it's tough to get here. And, like, now um, the dunk contest recently happened. And many people felt there was a robbery in 1988 with, you know, with uh, Michael Jordan, a hometown player, winning over Dominique Wilkins. But many people feel Dominique won. It's now, amazing that history repeated it repeat, itself. That's what I was about to get with Aaron Gordon and Derek Jones Jr. I yes. mean, what, what, and Dwayne Wade, a former teammate of Derek Jones Jr., was a judge. But anyway, yeah, you know, that's what I hear. That's what they're saying. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> it's you know, that's weird. But what was your take on both contests and compare both contests or how? I mean, the artistry from both well, the, the, guys in each one, year. Was this so. one was like an amazing one because. You know, guys went toe-to-toe, toe-to-toe with some great dunks, very creative. And I personally felt like Aaron Gordon should have won. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. But, I mean, you could also say, well, they were like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. You know, there were two or three rounds of those. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he did – Derrick Jones did have a great dunk dunk out. But I personally felt like Gordon won. Right. Who won in 88, you thought? 88, I thought Dominique won. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, the home crowd was looking for some home crowd cooking that they got. <laughs> they got yeah. it. Yeah. Michael was great. <laughs> Michael was wonderful. But Dominique won it. Yes. Well, I, I, feel, I feel the same way, you know, for sure. Like, I watched that. I was like. History repeated uh, itself. Yeah, right. It's interesting. Interesting. Um, now, you, um, people forget about your uh, acting Yes. Amazing Grace and Chuck. I love that movie. You know, wow. like how how was that to shoot that film and the death of Kobe Bryant? It's weird that I thought of the Amazing Grace and Chuck. I kind of thought of that. Yeah. Which you is, know what? That what's is, your take on that? I didn't think about that. You you bringing it up, but it was it was uh, something similar. But Amazing Grace was uh, about a movement, mm-hmm. right? About right. Changing yeah, the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to see an athlete die so tragically and so unexpectedly mm-hmm. and be such a great positive basketball player and family man is just heartbreaking and something that even to this day I still flash back in my mind and say, Kobe's gone. Kind of like Michael Jackson. 
Yeah. You know, like right. Michael Michael Jackson's gone. That's right. And that was on the Prince draft night. Gone. That was draft night, 2009 draft That's right. night. I was in Toronto. Yes. I remember that. And I was covering the draft. Yeah. Then. yeah. And I was right. shocked then. Man. But to be for it to be so close to home because I did know Kobe uh, and, and wow. knew him when he was a young man uh, coming into uh, the NBA. And then I was one of the coaches that was on the bench when he scored 81 points. Mm, that's in Toronto. So, with Toronto, yeah. <laughs> with Toronto in L.A. Yeah. So I, I really admired his game and just uh, he's very he's, he's going to be missed. Wow. And w- when you saw how he was scoring and, and 55 in the second half, yeah. like, w- w- you know, this controversy about the strategy that Coach Mitchell uh, and Coach Mitchell's my guy. I love yeah, Coach Mitchell. Yeah. That's my guy, you know, but but. He even he even said that he made a mistake not doubling Kobe. You know, yeah, do you think that went? Yes, that, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, I was one of those coaches. We should have doubled him every time because he was he was like a volcano mm-hmm. he was that hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and 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 did you did Kobe? You say you knew Kobe. Um, did he ask for your advice well, on I how to? I didn't know him like oh, I, okay. I had conversations with him mm-hmm, every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when I was working with the NBA Players Association. Uh, I put together this this game, or not a game, but a camp mm-hmm. for all the top high school players in the country mm-hmm. to come to Princeton and play. And you know, we included a lot of former players' kids mm-hmm. just because. Mm-hmm. But we we brought we brought a lot of the great play great high school players in. And I remember they they said this kid named Kobe Bryant. He's the guy that's going to be the guy. Yes. And I remember him coming in. And he had his sisters with him, and his mother was there. And, mm-hmm. You know, he was very cocky, and you know, <laughs> and you knew, and you played against Jelly Bean. Right? I played, played against, against his dad, mm-hmm. but he was very confident, and you knew this kid was special. Yes, he knew, and he won MVP of the camp. And I'm talking about some of the top players that ended up playing in the NBA, mm-hmm. like Tim Thomas, mm-hmm. two Collins brothers, uh, oh, uh, Jaron and Jason, Jaron and Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a bunch of guys that played, uh, but Kobe was the best. Yep, yep, yes, indeed. And that that Mamba mentality was what he's always uh, had in there. Absolutely, wow. And uh, now coaching, were you able to easily get respect of players um, because they knew that you are a Hall of Fame caliber player? Was it easy to like for them to listen to you? Yeah, they they listened, uh, and you know I really enjoyed coaching, but you are. I would have liked to have been a head coach. Right. You know, I would have enjoyed that. And it would have been a, a different perspective for me. But that's what I was, that's why I was in coaching. I wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. Well, why is that, you think? Well, I mean, I could go into that, but we don't have time. Mm, okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I dig that. I dig that. One more question for you, Mr. English. And I thank you for the for sitting here with me. I know you have a flight to catch pretty soon. Name the five players that you witnessed that you played against that really motivated you, your peers, that motivated you to be the player you were. Well, I'd have to say it was mainly defensive players. Um Guys that guarded me, that played me hard, mm. and uh, wouldn't give me a break on the floor. Uh, John Johnson, great John Johnson mm. in Seattle. Yes. Um, Lonnie Shelton, another Seattle player. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Calvin Nett, who yeah. played with me. That's right. Uh, Rodney McCray. Yeah. Yep. He was a tough man. Mm-hmm. Of Kings course. with the Kings. Right? Yes, and Bobby Jones. Mm-hmm. Oh, Bobby Jones. Uh, you know, same, 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 sta- same statue y'all have. Yeah, you know, same statue, yep. but all great defenders. And, you know, that was their thing. And uh, my thing was offense. Their thing was defense. And they molded me to come play every night. And you mentioned players that and, – and it was funny. I was just about to ask you about underrated players. Like, I was thinking about the last question, and you you just named players that are underrated as well as players that influence you. So you just you just read my and mind. I and the and question. I forgot <laughs> to mention Dennis Rodman. Oh, yes. Probably the, the toughest defender I ever played against. Ooh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And people people need to recognize that Worm was that guy. Like, he, was he that guy. really glued the team together. And he was a winner also yes. everywhere for yes. sure. So, wow. So, Mr. Alex English, I thank you for being on Where They At, special edition of Where They At here at All-Star Weekend in Chicago. And it's my pleasure to talk with you, It's been a great weekend. I enjoyed it. Yes, yes, indeed. Thank you, sir. Thank Thank you. you. It was wonderful to talk with the great Alex English, Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, class of 1997. You're listening to Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles, and... Part two of complete coverage from the 2020 NBA All-Star Weekend in Chicago. And I would like to present first-time All-Star representing the Boston Celtics, Jason Tatum. And I asked him which players he's checking out on YouTube, and he gave a very interesting answer. Any players historically that you've seen on YouTube that you didn't know about last year, like a player that old-school player that you saw that you were influenced by? Uh, I don't, I mean, I knew about Penny Hardaway, but I wasn't, like, old enough to really, really watch him. But, like, Penny, Penny was, he was, he was cold. And I don't think he gets enough, you know, respect or gets talked about enough. But Penny was, Penny's a lot of people's favorite player. How do you feel about Bradley not being here with you, your big brother Bradley Beal? Like, um, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, everybody here, everybody that made the All-Star game is deserving, uh, deserve to be here. It's always a few guys every every season or every year that are in the conversation that, you know, should have or could have made it. And, uh, Brad is definitely one of them. He averaged, he averaged 30 points right now a game. You know, but everybody here is deserving as well. That was Jason Tatum from the Boston Celtics, first-time All-Star. And I can tell that... He really wished that his big brother slash mentor, Bradley Beal, was with him at the All-Star game. Remember, Bradley and Jason both went to the same high school in St. Louis, Chaminade High School, where Bradley attended that school a few years before Jason did. But they've known each other for such a long time and go way back. And now we're going to move on to Phoenix Suns guard and first-time NBA All-Star Devin Booker and very insightful young man. And he shared the old school players that he likes to study, as well as the vets who have advised him to help him become the player he has become. So here we go. Devin, which old school players do you like to watch from the 70s or 80s or 90s, you know, on YouTube, those old school players that you like to check out? Because your game is very versatile, so. Been a fan of the game a long time, man. You know, I usually watch teams, you know, that Pistons teams, 04 and 05. It's not really vintage 60s, 70s, but 
you know, that was one of my favorite teams to watch. Um, I watch different players. Kevin McHale, Footwork, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's just certain parts of the game that I watch. Obviously, MJ. Um, it's a, a lot of times the people, Bird, Larry Bird, his footwork, incredible. So I've been, I've been watching for a very long time. Devin, what's the best piece of advice you got from an NBA veteran? From an NBA veteran? Am I a veteran now? Okay. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, I mean, you can't just narrow it down, man. I, I take pride uh, in talking to my OGs, and, and I respect a lot of people. So I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people. Um, from Tyson Chandler, who was my teammate, from P.J. Tucker, Ronnie Price, Jared Dudley, you know, has, has taught me the game a lot. Um, obviously Kobe, um, there's just a lot of people that, you know, that came to me with, with a, lot of, a lot of good advice that you know, I, approach, I approach the game with every day. That was first time All-Star Devin Booker from NBA All-Star Weekend on Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles. And next is uh, one of the most polarizing figures in the National Basketball Association by the name of James Harden. James is eight-time NBA All-Star, 2017-18 NBA Most Valuable Player, and, of course, he represents the Houston Rockets, a uh, dynamic duo with Russell Westbrook, for sure. And I asked James about what does he watch when it comes to basketball that helps be able to augment his game. Also, I asked him the same question as I asked Devin Booker about the vets who helped him along the way for him to become the player, the Hall of Fame player that he has become. So here we go. James, talk about the old school players that you watch on YouTube from the 70s, 80s, 90s, because you have that game. Like, which players really inspire you from those days? Uh, I mean, I get inspired by anybody. I'm just one of those guys that like to like, watch the NBA. I mean, that's not even the NBA. It's like high school games, you know, college games. You know, I find inspiration from anything to be able to uh, keep me pushing and keep me being great. So. It's not just about, you know, old school players. Who are your mentors, NBA vets, that were your mentors in, you know, helping you learn the tricks of the trade? I had a lot of vets. Well, I mean, I had uh, like Nick Collison and uh, when I was on that OKC team, Nazi Muhammad, uh, Kevin Otley. Those are some guys that, you know, that, that allowed me as a young guy to push through it. Uh, you know, told me it's all, it's all about your mental and your work ethic. You know, if you don't have those two, uh, you can't last very long in this league. So. Uh, I had some very, very, very good, good bets for me. That was James Harden, a.k.a. The Beard. Wow, what an honor to, to get so much great sound and conduct so many great interviews. And now, um, last but not least, I would like to um, present this interview with a gentleman that deserves more recognition. He's one of the absolute great ambassadors and impactful figures in the history of the National Basketball Association, and his name is Wayne Embry. Uh, Mr. Embry was the first black general manager in the NBA with the Milwaukee Bucks, but also before that, he was a five-time All-Star with the Cincinnati Royals, teammate of Oscar Robertson. He was an NBA champion with the 1967-68 Boston Celtics, uh, with Bill Russell. Then he became first black general manager in 1972 with the Milwaukee Bucks. Then he was executive of the year twice for the Cleveland Cavaliers in 1992 and 1998. So it was my honor to sit down with Mr. Embry, one of the pioneers of all the sports, and to talk about his career and, and his thoughts on the current landscape of the National Basketball Association 
And wow, without further ado, here's Mr. Wayne Embry. We're back on Where They At, and it is my honor and privilege to interview this gentleman who has um, been a pioneer for the game of basketball and sports as well. My pleasure to have Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, five-time All-Star with the Cincinnati Royals, NBA champion with the 1967-68 Boston Celtics, also uh, two-time executive of the year, 1992 and 1998, with the Cleveland Cavaliers. And he's from the state of Ohio, uh, born and raised and starred at Miami of Ohio. It's my pleasure to feature the one and only Mr. Wayne Embry. How are you, sir? Fine, thank you. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And uh, I wanted to uh, talk with you about you know, everything you have done in your career, being a pioneer, being the first black general manager in the league, um, and also being an athlete, a black athlete in the 1960s, which, you know, as we all know, this country was going through so much. But growing up in Ohio, how were you able to, with all of the racial strife going on in the Midwest South at that time, um, how were you able to keep your eyes on the prize and also talk about the inspirations, the people that were able to to help you mature and be excellent in what you decided to do? Well, the inspiration started at home. Mm-hmm. I grew up on a small farm outside of Springfield, Ohio, and it was kind of a Embry community. We called it the Hill. Mm-hmm. My grandfather moved up from Alabama, yep. bought this small farm. His oldest sons, and there was 13 in the family, but three oldest sons built homes next to his on the hill. So I grew up kind of in a little Embry compound, uh, not like the compounds we know of today, little four-room home-built, home-built houses. Uh, and uh, my grandfather is kind of the patriarch of the hill and ruled the hill, and he was a great inspiration to me, as were my parents and uncles. And I had to test early on, because uh, growing up in the 40s, 50s, there were just places we knew we couldn't go. Mm-hmm. So we, you avoided them, you just didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And I uh, went to, Elementary school, there were a few African-Americans in school. Mm-hmm. And from the ninth grade, uh, graduating from the ninth grade in junior high school, we had to go to a high school in our district. It was myself and one other African-American young lady who went to the high school and we were the only blacks in the, in the school mm-hmm. of maybe four or 500 people. And she ended up quitting. Mm. She was the first day, and because of the abuse and the way we were treated, she quit. And after a couple of days, I decided I was going to quit. Wow. So I came home, got off the bus, came across the hill where my grandfather was doing something, uh, farm work. And I said to him, I said, Grandpa, I'm going to quit. I'm quitting school. I'm going to stay and help you on the farm. He says, no, you're not. You're going to go back to school, son, tomorrow. 
Yes. So I said, nope, I'm not. And I couldn't get any any uh, satisfaction from him. So I said, well, I just talked to my parents. They overrule. So I go home and I talked to my dad and mom, mom and dad and and uh, I told them the same. They said, you're not quitting school. Mm-hmm. You're going back to school, son. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I gave them a little bit of the facts. And they said, you just got to prove that you're as good or better. Yes. Being as good may not be good enough, so prove that you're going to be better. Two times. Mm-hmm. And so... I went back to school, needless to say. They had some other choice words and choice actions that made me determine that I was going to go back to school. And so uh, I went back, and things worked out. I became very much accustomed to the way life was and actually made a lot of friends because because I I persevered through it. I think... uh, my classmates respected that, and they grew to respect me, and so it was a great four years, or three years, I guess it would have been, back in those days at high school, mm-hmm. and uh, that gave me my start. Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, um, the great Wayne Embry, um, where they're at 2020 NBA All-Star Weekend in Chicago, and uh, Mr. Embry, you found basketball, and it found you. And you ended up going to Miami of Ohio, being one of the great college basketball players of the 50s. Talk about how you were able to figure out how you had to endure, to go through the endurance, the endurance of the strife and racism and everything like that, and being able to, to not just be a great basketball player, but to set an example for your, for your race. Well, as I said earlier, I, I felt that I had to be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, than a lot of those who I was competing against to be on the team, but also who we competed against uh, other team when we competed against other teams, and so I had a, just an interesting journey because at each level I played basketball, I was cut from the team hmm. and brought back. Wow! Okay, and one of the defining moments in my my uh, early career was in the ninth grade, no, I was in the seventh grade or eighth grade, I can't remember which, but I finally made the team mm-hmm. uh, late in the season because mm-hmm. I, after I was cut, I kept playing intramural mm-hmm. basketball and the coach would watch some of our intramural games mm-hmm. and so Late in the year, it was close to tournament time. Coach comes to me and says, I'm going to bring you up to to the varsity. You you made the team. So I'm all excited about that. I go home and tell my parents. And I go down to my little dirt court and start practicing. And so I go to school the next day. Time to go to the game. The last class of the day was English. My English teacher asked for our papers, Mm -hmm. our assignment papers. I didn't do mine because I was practicing basketball. Wow. And so and so, she says, you're not going to the game. And I'm going to tell the coach, you didn't turn in your homework, you're not going to the game. So I didn't go to the game. Mm-hmm. So that was a lesson. Yep. And it helped me to respect academics. 
mm-hmm. as well as playing basketball, playing sports. Mm-hmm. And so uh, from that point on, I figured I had to excel in the classroom as well as wherever I, whatever sport I competed in. Jack Twyman and, of course, Oscar Robertson. You and Mr. Robertson have really made a significant contribution to the history of not just basketball, but society as well. Mr. Robinson with free agency, bringing that up and also being an advocate for black athletes in the 60s and yourself being the first black general manager. Um, Talk about the relationship you and Oscar Robinson had, not just on the court, but off the court on how you can make changes with your fellow fellow athletes. Well, Oscar uh, came to the Royals two years after I was there. I was, again, the only African-American on the team. And Oscar joined us two years later. And of course, history speaks for itself. He's a big O. And he, uh, he was quite an inspiration because he made us all better. His greatness uh, allow us to do the things we did, and, and he uh, he uh, encouraged us to be better than we thought we were. And I had a great relationship with them. We were roommates. Back in those days, we had roommates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> totally different now. Yeah, it's different now. And we stayed in motels. Yeah. <laughs> Not in the big hotels that our players <clears throat> largely because of Oscar mm-hmm. and his right. influence with the Players Association and of course the Oscar Robertson suit which brought about free agency defines the NBA today. Mm-hmm. I think everybody is much better off. Players, of course, ownership. So, <clears throat> excuse me, so he, Oscar has played a significant role in in not only the NBA, but also in history. Yes, yes indeed. Uh, talking with Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer Wayne Embry, two-time executive of the year, and uh, you ended up joining the Boston Celtics with another pivotal, not just African-American pioneer, but pioneer in Mr. Bill Russell. How was that to join him and you know, and at that time, he was really vocal for civil rights. And that was the, the time in the late 60s where uh, where everything was coming to a head. So um, uh, describe your relationship with Bill Russell and what you learned from him. Well, it was, it was a great relationship. We Back in those days, there were eight teams, and there were very few African-American players mm-hmm. in the league. I think uh, Mike class was uh, the second generation, mm-hmm. you know, after Earl Lloyd and, and of course, Russell and Willie Knowles and Sam Jones and some, some of the others that came in just, just before me. And so it was difficult. Russell was a, you know, pace setter in, 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 uh, in Boston because when he first came there, he had to endure quite a bit mm-hmm. of racism, and and he uh, again persevered through it. Mm-hmm. And that's the key word, perseverance, because that's what we had to do. That's right. And keep our uh, mind focused on what we had to do on the court. Mm-hmm. 
And so I competed against Russell for a number of years, but we were all friends mm -hmm. when we weren't competing. Mm -hmm. And this is perhaps unheard of, but when we played in Boston, we'd go to his house for a pregame meal. He'd come to Cincinnati, he'd come to our house for a pregame meal. Wow. Because there were a lot of restaurants you couldn't eat in in Cincinnati. Yeah. And uh, so we just had to do what we did. Mm -hmm. And uh, then go out and compete against, and we can, so I competed against him for a number of years. And finally, uh, I was going to retire from the game. So it was time that I retire, pursue other career. And he uh, talked me out of retirement mm -hmm. to join him as first year as coach. Right. So I went to Boston, which is a great decision, mm -hmm. and was able to play on a championship team and be a part of that great Boston tradition. Wow, and you're a five-time All-Star. Uh, describe the differences now with All-Star Weekend and the festivities. I mean, and how the, it shows just how the NBA has totally grown. Well, the NBA's grown, and, <laughs> and I just think it's just a great institution now. Mm -hmm. uh, our All-Star games, we would go in and have a banquet the night before, play the game, and go home. No slam dunk contest, none of that existed. Mm -hmm. And none of the, the uh, other side issues, the breakfasts, the lunches, uh, those various things didn't exist. And so the game was very competitive. And I think one of the defining moments in time was in 64, I think it was 64, 64 All-Star game mm -hmm. when the, we decided to strike, not play the game. That was, yes, yes, it was 64, right. Yeah, you got to have to so mind to mind re <laughs> recall. Mm -hmm. But uh, we uh, get to Boston, and Tommy Heinsohn met us in the lobby of our hotel and says, we're going to meet at the Garden, Boston Gardens tonight at 6.30, because mm -hmm. the game is an 8 o'clock game. Mm -hmm. He says, we're all going to meet in one room, and we're going to discuss whether we're going to play the game or not, because our negotiations with the league so far has not been successful in getting our pension plan. Mm -hmm. And recognize the, uh, the Players Association, the union. Mm -hmm. And so we, uh, we all meet in the Celtic, well, it was the Celtic dressing room. And <clears throat> we, they were negotiating all the while we were in their meeting. Mm -hmm. And the owners kept saying no. And this was the first televised game, wow. All-Star game. Wow. So you can see the pressure. Yep. So finally, it was about five minutes to eight. It was an eight o'clock game. Five minutes to eight. Commissioner comes in and says, you blank blanks are recognized. <laughs> We're going to recognize the union, and you, you'll get your pension plan. Wow. Imagine. So we go out with three minutes warm-up and play the game. Wow. And, Mr. Emery, it's so funny. Imagine if it was now with social media 
and all the it's yeah. a, oh goodness well, no, nothing will be held all the talks and every every <laughs> era is relative and so mm. it was it was a big it was a big big undertaking <laughs> but we did it so mr emery you became general manager uh with the milwaukee bucks the first african-american general manager uh in all the sports and talk about the process and the pressure that you felt within yourself i, I played there in 68 69 season that's right and then the next year they drafted cream of dual jabbar mm-hmm. So I didn't think I could beat him out. <laughs> I didn't get much play, so I thought it was time for me to retire. So I retired, went back to Boston as director of recreation for the city of Boston and did color commentary on the Celtic broadcast. And then the next summer, Wes Pablon, who was the owner of the Bucks, came to Boston to visit Arthur Ashe who was playing in a tennis tournament there. He wanted to call and said, can you come by the house? Mm-hmm. Come and get me. And I brought him by the house. He just wanted to, vi- I thought he just wanted to visit. And he says, uh, what do you think about coming back to Milwaukee? And I said, in what capacity? He said, in the front office. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I said, well, that's ex- something we got to think about. Mm-hmm. My wife and I talked about it and said, yes, we'll do it. When I became general manager in the 70s, early 70s, I couldn't fail. Mm-hmm. I wasn't afraid of failure because if you're afraid of failure, you don't try. Yep. But I knew I couldn't fail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be an inspiration to others to follow. Yes. Uh, of course, my hero was Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. And that which he went through. Yes, indeed. And he endured, persevered through it. I had to do the same, but I knew I couldn't fail and I wasn't going to be run out. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the attitude we have to take. What were the things that you learned as a player that helped you in scouting and evaluating talent? I was fortunate to play on winning teams in Cincinnati, and but probably most important, playing for the Celtics because they were a dynasty back mm-hmm. in those days, mm-hmm. and play under the great Red Auerbach. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a lot of my management uh, policies from him, mm-hmm. and uh, and others. I paid attention. I studied what other people did and how they did it. And I learned early on that to build a team in my management career, I should say, I learned early on how to build a team. And I used some of the things that I got from Red and Russell. Mm -hmm. And what I learned was intelligence, character, and talent in that order is what wins. So that's how I try to build my teams. Yes, yes, indeed. And and Chicago Bulls of the 1990s, you know, like um, they 
they just it was a team that totally just uh dominated <laughs> over everybody everyone had a trouble and when michael retired for those two years then hakeem was that person <laughs> in his rockets yeah. but um the 60s celtics versus the 90s bulls which team would prevail in the seven game series if you take the best players from the 60s celtics best players from the 90s bulls which team would win well i'm partial to the 60s because i'll tell you when you got bill russell mm-hmm. Sam Jones, Casey Jones, John Havlicek. Yep. Tommy Hines. How many Hall of yeah. Famers? Well, just count the number yeah. of Hall of Famers. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On, that, on, on, on that team, Tom Sanders. Satch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, that's a pretty good team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and, and now, fast forward to now, to this NBA. Which players do you see really represent the game, like from the little things they do on the court, you know, that represent the game? Because we have players that, you know, it's a different generation, but players that you look at them and, like you say, have that intelligence, that character, and then the talent. Who who represents that now? First comes to mind is LeBron James, of course. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. An Ohio, Ohio gentleman came out yes, right outside right. of Cleveland in Akron. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, there's several. Mm-hmm. And more than several. Uh, you know, uh, Steph Curry and mm. you go there. And it's just, there's just great players, great players playing in the league today. And so it's really hard to define. But there are those who stand out. Kawhi Leonard we had last year in Toronto, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. terrific player. Uh, KD, can't leave him out. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a difference maker. And Clay Thompson, you know, it's just so many. You just go mm-hmm. right down the list and names all these great players. And I'm just fascinated by this kid, Doncic at Dallas. yes. yes. <laughs> it's unbelievable. 20-year-old to be doing what he's doing is unbelievable. Yeah, 15-year-old pro. Was a yes. pro since 15 mm-hmm. in, in, in this, the top yeah. European league Top in European league. Mm-hmm. And it's just fascinating to see how he plays, and you know, I enjoy watching him. Wow, wow. We're here with Wayne Embry. Uh, special edition of Where They At from Chicago 2020 All-Star Weekend. And uh, Mr. Embry, I, Tor- speaking of Toronto, you're an advisor for the Toronto Raptors. Been here since 2004, I believe. That's right? correct. Yes, and and this team, 15-game win streak, it just ended, unfortunately. But did you see this team being having a better record now than they did at this point last season. Did you see this team flourishing like this so fast? No, I did not. I, I, uh, I tell you, I, I just give all the credit to the players, the way they've taken it, taken the responsibility, you know, to, to, to define themselves as champions. They are champions. And I think that was a great experience for them. And to watch the growth of, Pascal Siakam and and uh, some of the other young players that have uh, really they've really worked at their game to improve, and they know how to win. And uh, I think management's created a, an environment for them to be successful and win. I, I just give a lot of credit to Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster and his front office team and. 
And, of course, Nick Nurse, the coach. Mm-hmm. And speak- a terrific job. Yes, yes, indeed. And speaking of Masai Ujiri, um, uh, born in Nigeria, uh, African, um, has won two Executive of the Year awards, I believe, like yourself, you know. Um, what do you, do you see you in him and how he approaches the craft of um, – of generating a team and putting a team together? Does he follow intelligence, he does. character, talent? He does, and he, he advocates that and is uh, pretty adamant about what he wants, mm-hmm. which you have to be. Yes. And uh, I'm just proud of what he's done and the whole front office staff down there and the coaches and the players. I'm just proud of them. They inspire me at my age and where I've been. I'm at the stage now where my inspiration comes with watching those young people wow. be successful. Wow. Does uh, Mr. Jury always um, uh, use you as his sage um, for advice? And, and does he, any any time that he has some conflict, does he come to you for that? For that well, he has uh, over the years. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, when I see something, I'll go to him as well. <laughs> That's right. We see something, say something. Yes, right. <laughs> well, and uh, and one last question for you, um, Mr. Embry. Um, you look at you've been part of the history of the game. This game is about to be seventy five years old. Uh, 2020, 2021, I believe that. No, 2021, 2022 will be the seventy fifth anniversary of the NBA. And um, what are the three events? I know this is a broad question. It may take some time for thought, but what are the three events that stand out to you the most in the 60-some-odd years being involved in the league and how those events have still stands the test of time today with the NBA? Well, the NBA, of course, has grown to be a global sport, and I think uh, near, near strike at 64, I think that mm-hmm. – uh, had a lot to do with where we are. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the way David Stern uh, promoted the game globally. Mm-hmm. Starting with the 92 Dream Team, that really catapulted yes. everything. Yep. And, you know, we had sent teams to Europe uh, to play in the 60s even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to Europe once in the 60s. Me and several other NBA players play against competition over there. Mm-hmm. We went to South America a couple years later, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. nothing like the recent years. Well, we'd go and we'd sell out outdoor stadium. Mm-hmm. Wow! But uh, the I think the dream team in 1992, and uh, when the NBA started participating in the Olympics, brought the game more and more and I got to see our stars more and more in uh, Europe and around the world and uh, I think we're even growing more now we're going with uh, the uh, Pro League in Africa which is just Mm -hmm. amazing development and it just shows the growth and I think uh, marketing worldwide marketing just become a contributing factor Yes. And the players are, you know, we talked about comparing players to generations, but this generation of players are very good as well. Mm-hmm. Something that we all can be proud of, those of us who contributed and been a part of the game. Well, 
and and Mr. Embry, you have contributed to to the growth of the game and being able to diversify the game, especially in the front office. And and that's why I want to ask you too. Where's the? What do you think? What is the progress looking like right now with front office and having more people of color in the front office? Like, how's? What do you think of the progress right now? Well, it's been tremendous progress. I mean, you just look at the thirty teams. Uh, there's been tremendous progress. There's been some regression, but I think uh, that uh, we have to look at going forward what one has to do to 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 be successful, be a candidate, and be successful in these jobs. And mm-hmm. and uh, as long as there's an open mind from ownership, and I, I think you'll continue to see diversity because I know the league promotes it mm-hmm. and and I think players and those of, who want to become front office uh, personnel or coaches mm-hmm. have to prepare themselves for it mm-hmm. and, and consider it a possibility yes because it is I, I could talk to you forever, Mr. Emery, on, on, on your history, your vast history, the stories that you've provided and those stories that have resonated throughout NBA lore and, and also that can also inspire so many others. And I, I thank you for the honor for joining me here on Where They At and especially for such a glo- during a glorious weekend of All-Star Weekend here in Chicago. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Taking the time to come and talk with us. Nice chat. Wow, that was a tremendous uh, talk with Mr. Embry. And what a way to conclude All-Star Weekend coverage. I want to thank all of you for listening to Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles. And if you want to hear this podcast and hear many other engaging episodes, you can listen to Where They At on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and or follow as well as rate for sure. Make sure you do that. And if you love the music that has been played throughout the uh, episode, you can go to N-A-B-A-T-E-I-S-L-E-S.com, Nabateals.com. The music is from my album, Eclectic Excursions. And you can also purchase it on Amazon, Google Play, Apple Music, Uh, Stream it on Tidal, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. And also, I want to thank the National Basketball Association, the entire NBA staff, and the entire league in general, just filled with classy individuals. And I always love working with them. And I've been able to interact with many of them for many years now. And it's been really a pleasure to be able to work with them. So I thank the National Basketball Association as well. And thank you once again for listening to Where They At. My name is Debate Owls, and I'll be back very soon with another episode. Take care, everybody. God bless. Mm-hmm.